century number 10 of Brendan Taylor. Talking about Rivada, we're talking about how good he is. And there it is. His 39th one day international hundred. The king gets his crown at the Atlanta. Go on, take it. Deep in Wigan. Glenn Maxwell celebrates Rick Cole. He cannot believe it in the middle of the ground. Welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast. Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket show with expert analysis by Dean Duplessis. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Great to have you along as always, wherever you may be listening. And if you'd like to subscribe, uh, maybe this is the first time that you've heard of the Dean at Stumps podcast. Let me tell you, it is an undiscovered treasure trove of cricket. That's what it is. So (laughs) it's pretty simple. You go to your preferred podcast feed or app. So be it iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Downcast, and uh, you then search for Dean at Stumps. You subscribe and you listen You will then be able to listen to an interview with a whole bunch of former cricketers, from Michael Holding to David Gower. In fact, we have three former England captains in David Gower, Michael Vaughan, and of course, one-day captain Adam Holyoke. Uh, So there's a whole bunch of very interesting interviews, people who really bring the game to life and uh, take us back down memory lane again. So who is this week's guest? Well, he currently coaches Derbyshire in the UK and does it with a great deal of success. But in terms of what he achieved on the field, he was the first Zimbabwean to score a one-day international 100 for the country when he scored 142 against New Zealand in 1987. He was the first Zimbabwean to score a test 100 when he and the entire team debuted against India in 1992 when he scored 121. He was the first Zimbabwean to score a test double hundred two years later when he made 266 against Sri Lanka. He was one of a few people who was also a player coach at the time. He represented many world 11s and benefit 11s and played alongside greats of the game. And I do mean greats. He even had the privilege of captaining Sir Vivian Richards, Sachin Tendulkar and many more. I am, of course, referring to one of Zimbabwe's finest, Dave Houghton. Well, Dave Houghton arrived in the country with Derbyshire back in March. And, uh, well, uh, Derbyshire was supposed to have played a couple of games. But then, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic hit hit the entire world. And uh, it was obviously wisely decided that both Derbyshire and Durham would return to England. And Dave decided, well, the weather is still very good here in Zimbabwe. Let me stay here with my family as opposed to returning to England where the weather would be pretty miserable. And it turned out to be a very good decision for Davey as well. But um, as much as he pretty much realises that there is a pandemic and that does take preference over anything else, Dave is just as keen as all the players for a little bit of cricket to happen. Yeah, it's... Look, I mean, this this pandemic has caught everyone by surprise. No one really knows how it derived and when it's going to go. And, you know, everything's come to a standstill. And, of course, part of that is uh, the county cricket season. But, look, there's hope. You know, there's still another three months or so of the summer to go in England. And there's still hope that there's a possibility of some cricket before the end of the season. Yeah. So tell us a bit about Derbyshire. There's not, you know, well, certainly from a Zimbabwean perspective, it, it, you know, there's not any of the really big, big names that we associate, for example, Joe Root with Yorkshire and, and uh, you know, all the other bigger names. But tell us a bit about the side that you have. 
Yeah, it's it's a good side. It's um, you know you have to understand county cricket um, a little bit to understand where Derbyshire are. So you know it has now really become county cricket has sort of become uh, separated by the size of clubs and the and the amount of finance of clubs and things a little bit like Premier League football, a, a Man United versus a, a Watford down the other end, something like that. So. We're in that position. If you take a, a Surrey, for example, who are probably the wealthiest county side, they have a staff of 30 full-time. They probably have another 15 or 20 academy staff full-time. You know, at Derby, we have 17 full-time players, yeah. and we have an academy of five or six lads. Most of them are at school. So, you know, we, we have quite a different scenario to deal with. Um, having said that, it doesn't mean that when you put your 11 out on the park, you can't compete well with these sides, as we proved last year. You know, we... We didn't have the best championship year, although we were only probably a game or so away from relegation. So we won four good matches and we could have done with winning another one, maybe two, which would have probably got us promoted. So we're still in the second division of that. In the T20, we more than held our own and got to finals day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we weren't far off in the 50-over competition as well, probably a win away from qualifying. So all in all, for what we have, we, we um, compete well above our, our size. And we've got some really good players. You know, Ravi Rampol had a fantastic season with the ball for us last year. Uh, Wayne Madsen is as good as goal, and he always has been. He's probably been the most prolific run scorer in England county cricket for 10 years without having had the ability to play for England because he was uh, coal-packed at that time. Uh, Billy Godelman, our captain, had a fantastic year last year. He got 2,500 runs in all competition. And, and most recently, we signed on a coal-pack a young left-hander by the name of Lies Deploy, ex-South African. He's got a Hungarian passport. And, you know, you can, you can quote me on this, but if that boy doesn't play for England, I will be very surprised. He's probably as good a batsman in England now as I've seen. Really? It, it, mu- it must be something that you've become very used to, punching above your weight. I mean, it, it's been like that pretty much throughout your cricket career in terms of playing for Zimbabwe, coaching Zimbabwe. Um, I would imagine maybe the, the, in, in terms of, of punching pretty much... Uh, Weight to weight or pound for pound would probably be when you coached Worcestershire in 1996, maybe? Yeah, uh, you know, Worcester in those days, I think in the late 80s and early 90s, they were the county champions for a couple of years. You know, Botham and, um, and Graham Hick and Graham Dilly were their main sort of protagonists, but they obviously had some very good players around them as well. And, you know, they were a good side. When I, when I came in and was their head coach in 94 to 97, they were just in the process of reshaping themselves. So one or two of the senior players, like Botham and Dilly, had retired. Um, Hickey was obviously still there, but he was now starting to get picked for England. So we didn't see a lot of him. Um, and it was a sort of rebuilding campaign. But, but we were very competitive in all, in all games. You know, I think we won the NatWest Trophy, I think, in my second year there, the 60-over the competition. Um, and by the time I left, I think we were second or third in the championship that year. So... They rebuilt pretty well and they were a very competitive side. And funny enough, Worcester are a small county like Derby, but have always competed above their weight. They've just been fantastic. When I say always, certainly that I can remember Mm. in the late 80s to now. They always are there competing. Um, Wasn't Tom Moody also there as well? He was. Tom was the overseas player. Um, in, In fact, my coming to Worcester, Tom sort of kept me out of playing because... I was actually taken on at Worcester initially as captain of the second team and assistant coach um, because I couldn't play first team cricket because you only allowed one overseas player in those days. Right. So I played a season in the second team as their coach um, 
and as it turned out, as I arrived, they sacked their head coach. So I was ended up being second team captain, coach, first team coach. I was playing club cricket on Saturdays. It was a busy year. And of course, um, you also had the privilege of not only coaching Tom Moody, but you've actually played in a couple of matches with him in terms of World Elevens. I remember one very vivid partnership between yourself and Tom in Port Elizabeth, where uh, that was for a Kepler Vessels benefit eleven. So you must be quite, you know, big, tall, strong guy. Hits the ball millions of miles. So. I mean, that must have been pretty special because you would have played against him when, when Tom toured Zimbabwe, be it with a county side or with one of the Australian sides as well, I, I would imagine. Yeah, look, we've been good mates for, for many years, so it was nice to actually renew acquaintances. I, I knew Tom before I went to Worcester, and, you know, we've seen a lot of each other since. In fact, having said that, I probably haven't seen him much in the last 10 or 12 years. He's yeah. been pretty busy with franchise cricket all around the world, and I haven't really seen him in England. Um, but up till then, we used to see a lot of each other. And, and I can tell you that at Worcester, probably the one thing that all those Worcester fans in those days, and I will certainly never forget, is to see Hick and Moody together oh, at the yes. crease because yeah. they used to pace each other. If Tom took a bowler down one over, Hickey would feel the necessity the next over to take the other bowler down. Anything you can do, I can do better. And to see the two of them in full flow was quite a sight, I promise you. Yeah, many, many. Even Alan Donald uh, talks very much about the Hick Moody show. It used to be known around the county circuit as the Hick Moody show. Um, So a lot of people, Davey, obviously know or remember the days of when Zimbabwe got their test status and uh, you know the significant roles you played. Your your hundred as uh, on debut as captain, the two hundred and sixty six, and then the success you had as coach. But not too many people actually know how Zimbabwe got there. And and a lot of cricket that was played at first class level. So you had a lot of the county sides touring, which is a real shame because it would have been nice for Derbyshire and Durham for all of us to have gone ahead had the pandemic not happened. But just just take us back to some of those special moments leading up to Zimbabwe eventually getting their test status with the young West Indians, the young Australians and England Day and the county sides touring. There must have been some very memorable moments. They were, they were magic, magic moments for all of us. You know, if, you, if you remember, if you cast your mind back, there was no first class uh, tournament in Zimbabwe. Yes. So we, you know, we had the Logan Cup, which literally we played two day games against country districts against Matabidilene and that was it. Um, they weren't first-class status, and it was hardly preparation for for anything we were doing going forward. Our league was still strong. We had very good uh, Sunday leagues throughout the country, and the national league, so you played throughout the country. I mean, we used to fly to Bulaway in the morning, play all day, and fly back in the evening. You know, they were amazing days. Um, but I think this is where Dave Elman-Brown and Alwyn Pachanek and the board that they ran at the time were so brilliant. They realised the need for us to have constant first-class opposition that would prepare us going forward. You know, and going forward for us at the time meant attending associate member World Cups, making sure we won them to get qualification into the main World Cup. Um, <clears throat> obviously, we had put together uh, um, applications to try and get test status at the time. Probably it was too early in 82, 83. Might have been better for us in, in the mid-80s when we had a very strong side still. So, <clears throat> all of that taken into consideration, the county tours in particular were our sort of um, our daily bread and butter. Mm. You know, we'd get two county tours come out a year, we'd play two or three first-class games against them. You know, I've been a county coach now for a while and I can tell you that a lot of county tours have changed where counties go away and they just practice for 10 days. Nice. They go into the nets, they maybe have a centre wicket practice amongst themselves. They play very little match cricket. 
And I was very big this year with Derby and, and uh, spoke to Durham as well about bringing back match cricket in pre-season preparation. So when these counties came out in the 80s, they had a couple of days practice, but most importantly, they wanted matches. So we'd play two or three three-day games, sometimes four-day games. Then we'd back it up with you know, three one-day games, and it was a, became little series against each county. And we were always very competitive. The counties always struggled a bit because they just come off a winter. Yeah. So we got them just at the right time. <laughs> and I think you know, a lot of the times we gave them some good hidings. Having said that, it, um, if you look back at some of those counties that came out here on the pre-season tours, when they went back, they had great seasons. And so it, it's been hard to get counties to come back, but Durham and Derby now hopefully have bridged that gap. And I can assure you, certainly from the heads of cricket meetings I go to, there are a lot of counties that are interested in coming back here to play. Wow. Do, do you remember, I mean, <coughs> well, of course you remember, you would have been a part of it, but um, I remember vividly before I even started following cricket, my, my brother uh, pestering my dad to take him to a couple of the, the counties touring. So we had a scenario where we had Worcestershire and Warwickshire here at the same time. And it was nice because it was almost like a tri-series because both of them had their, their strongest teams, apparently. Um, and, of course, you had Zimbabwe. So it was almost like a, like a triangular series where you'd have Worcestershire playing Warwickshire on Saturday and then Zimbabwe would be playing you know, Worcestershire or Warwickshire on Sunday. And, and you know, you had the, the strongest possible Warwickshire side, who was there, Dermot Reeve, a couple of other players who, you know, who would make that side good. Then from a, a Worcestershire perspective, you'd have Graham Hick, Ian Botham and... I mean, it was almost like watching One Day Internationals back in those days. Yeah, they were fantastic, weren't they? And Worcester came out a, a number of times. Um, in fact, I even came with them once as, as their coach. But it, it, I think prior to that, they came out with Warwickshire once, they came out with Glamorgan yeah, once as well. Right. So there was a couple of triangular series. The, the funny thing is, there was more county sides here than we actually knew about. And that sounds crazy to say, but I only found out some years later that Gloucestershire came out here five or six years in a row and went straight to Triangle and stayed at the Triangle Sports Club and did their pre-season tour me. there themselves. Wow. And I didn't know about that until about five or six years later. That is... <laughs> okay, that is remarkable. I wouldn't have known about that either. And uh, t let's talk a bit about the, the processes of Zimbabwe eventually getting their test status. So there's quite a few of uh, the international fraternity who I've spoken to over the years who said that Zimbabwe were actually given a bit of a raw deal because they qualified on a number of occasions and they should maybe have got their test status in the mid-1980s as opposed to 1992. Now, you would have been a part of that setup in 85, 86, round about there, and you were slightly older, but you were part of the 92, obviously, um, squad as well. Would you agree with what these, what these, the likes of Dean Jones, David Gower, I think, and, and a couple of other people who, who said that? Would that, be a, would that be true? A lot of these guys who made those comments had been to Zimbabwe and played against us in either county tours or in A-side tours. They knew our strength and we were a strong side. We had some fantastic players. You know, we, we somehow, this tiny country with lovely weather manages to produce unbelievable sportsmen for, the, for its size. Mm. And they had seen us and they knew but I, I want to take you back a little bit, and you have to understand the ICC and its, its beginnings to understand the problems we had. At that time, the ICC was run by, by um, three, count, uh, three countries in particular who had the power of veto. They were the founding members, and that was England, Australia, and South Africa. Now, South Africa were banned at the time, so they didn't have a vote. Right. So effectively, England and Australia ran world cricket. And... 
particularly England, have always been uh, um, sort of quite guarded in like an old boy society of this test status. You know, this is our game, it's test cricket, let's keep it to the eight or nine countries that I think Sri Lanka had come in to make it nine, but South Africa were actually uh, still banned, so it was down to eight sides. And let's just keep a nice small little pocket of test sides and, and let's not let anybody else in. And that, unfortunately, was a view that continued for 10, 12 years. So every time Zimbabwe put in an application to have test status, and I think our first one went in when we qualified for the World Cup in 82, that's when our first application went in, and as soon as it came to a vote, one or other of England or Australia just put in a veto, and that was the end of that vote. And you were given a, you know, a, you need a, a set of rules and things to follow for the next four years. You know, we want you to have a first-class status. We want you to do this and that. You had to cover all these bases before we'd have a look at another application. So we would do that. Again, you know, Dave and and Alwyn in particular, leading it from the front and the boards and everybody would do everything asked of them. We as a team would beat a lot of sides, big names in front of us. So we were doing everything required for that test status to be awarded. We'd get to the 86, we'd qualify for the next World Cup, uh, we put in another application and the same thing happens. It goes to a vote. All the other test playing countries voted for us. But one of either England or Australia would put in a veto and that would be bad luck, we'll see you in four years' time again. Same thing happened in 1990. The end result of this, though, is the, the most unbelievable for me because I can remember we'd qualified for the World Cup in Australia and New Zealand 1990, 91. Um, we were playing against South Africa at... Um, Manuka Oval. In Canberra. Yeah, yeah. And um, I'd got out and I was walking around the ground and was met by the then ICC chairman, Dave Richards. Dave Richardson, I think, or just Dave Richards. I can't quite remember. Yeah, because Richardson would have still been a yeah. keeper for South Africa. He was, so, yeah. So, yeah. He, and he's only chief executive. This was the chairman. Right. He was an Australian guy. And he said, can we have a walk around the ground? I need to have a chat. So I said, yeah. So we walked around the ground and he said to me, what do you think your chances are if we gave you test status? And I said to him, well, you've left it too late. Because we've now, if you can remember then, Dean, we were down to about eight club sites. Yes. Um, we still didn't have any first-class cricket at, uh, of any standard within the country. Um, we were literally picking our side from 80 people. Um, we'd lost all our good players. Curran had gone, Rawson had gone, um, Trevor Penny had gone, Hick had gone. You know, we'd been decimated. And the chances of us now surviving test cricket would be next to nil. Two weeks later, they gave us test status. Yes. So I, I have never been able to understand that decision. I'm thankful for it because yeah. it means we've got test status and we've had some great test cricket in the, the next 20 odd years. But how they ever came up with the idea of giving us test cricket when they did, I will never understand. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? And, and again, if I understand correctly, it was Australia who eventually said, you know what, all right, we'll say yes. And England uh, still had a problem. They were the ones who... Uh, who, who still were guarded, as you rightly you use the word guarded, some people say they still had their noses in the air uh, about about Zimbabwe getting their test status. But Dave, wouldn't it have been nice if Zimbabwe had been granted test status in the 1980s? Because then the, the natural progression of the players who would have taken over from the older guard would have been a bit 
you know, it would have been better because your your comp your competition would have been a lot stiffer uh, at club level and at provincial level. So the players going into the side would have had a slightly better first class pedigree, which I would imagine it would even have affected the current crop of players today as well. Yeah, look, I agree with you, and and you know those those tours in the in the early eighties, the young A sides and the, and the county sides, they had prepared us for Test cricket. We were, we were ready at that stage for Test cricket. When they eventually gave us Test cricket in '92, we didn't have anything to fall back on because once that happened, we started to lose the A side tours. Well, we did lose the A side tours, and we started to lose county tours. So effectively, we had young cricketers coming into the national side to play a test match, learning how to play cricket in the match. And that was was so difficult. Our, our guys were learning to play test cricket in a test match. We, we didn't have any build-up to this that would prepare anybody for test cricket. Whereas if they'd given it to us in the 80s, we still had a remnant of blokes who were hardened by the Curry Cup prior to independence. Yeah. We still had a side that was pretty hardened by the standard of A-side teams and county teams we had played against. And we had good players. We would have been able to hold our own. And I believe we would have actually then been better role models, which would have brought a bigger wave of young players through. As it turned out, by the time they gave us Test Cricket, cricket was nearly dead in this country. That's, so you would, you'd have had a bowling attack. Let's, let's look at the bowling. And of course, it's, you can say if and this yeah. and that. But I mean, it's nice to just <laughs> dream a little bit, I suppose. So you would have had a Peter Rawson running in and bowling those away swingers at a lively pace. You would have had Kevin Curran, I suppose, who, would have, who still would have been around. Malcolm Jarvis, left arm seamy, was a bit quicker then, then I would imagine. Um, you know, when he, when he was a bit younger, you would have... Who else would have been... Big Edo. Big Edo, a young Edo and a fitter Edo as well. What was he like, Dave? I mean, was he a difficult bowler on the day? Was he a handful to face? Edo was a very, very good bowler. He was, um, you know, he, he was quite a big unit. Yeah. That's not to say fat. He was just a big lad. Uh, he was, you know, tall, big physique, and he bowled bouncy outswingers at pace. So he was unplayable on his day. And I mean, he got, a, you know, hat tricks and, and, and things yeah. like that in World Cup games and in, and in one-day internationals. But he was a hatful in any conditions. The problem is, is that being a big unit as he was and not having fully professional cricket in our country, you know, he's having to juggle a job and then come in and play cricket at the weekends and things like that. We could never get him fit enough to last for any length of time. And so if you look back on Edda's career, the only real problem there was that Edda never stayed fit enough to really be the, the dynamic force in world cricket that he could have been. Because yeah. he was, I promise you, on his day, he was unplayable. You know, Kepler Vessels, uh, and if you get a compliment from Kepler, then you know you've done well. And he, w he reminded me of the, the World Cup warm-up game that you played at Harare Sports Club. So not the actual mm -hmm. game. A very, And you just said there was this massive, intimidating crowd at Harare Sports Club. And uh, Zimbabwe was skittled out for 170 on a, on a very lively pitch. And um, you know, he said, Dean, I have to be honest with you, we thought we'd chase this down without any problems. But Edo made it virtually, well, he made it very difficult because he, he bowled. And he said, I'll tell you something else as well. On, on the day, Edo was as quick as anybody. Mm. You know, many people describe him as a right-arm briskish medium pace. When he was fit, when he had rhythm, he was right up there with the very best. And the difference was that he bowled, as you alluded to, he got the bounce because of his height, uh, his height and the away swinger. And, you know, said, he, he said in no, in no time at all, he removed me and Andrew Hudson with virtually no runs on the board. And suddenly 171 actually seemed like a tricky total. Um, so he was very complimentary of of Edo and in the, a couple of the of the bowlers as well but um i i want to talk a bit more about some of the 
the other teams that came out here. So the young West Indies. I mean, there were some seriously talent, talented players who you could, you know, um, try or, or, or try and better your skills against when, when they were out here. Unbelievable. I mean, the first West Indian side that came out here is the one that we will all remember the most because yeah. it had, you know, the, it had the next sort of generation of West Indian test players over the next 10, 15 years that dominated world cricket. You know, so we had Desi Haynes and Fahad Bacchus opening the batting. We had little Gus Logie playing. Uh, we had Jeff Dujon. And, of course, we had Malcolm Marshall and Wayne Daniels and Hartley Elaine and Winston Davis. Wow. They were just an unbelievable, unbelievable uh, cricket team. The thing about it was uh, they were such great guys. Um, I can remember many, many days coming off the field and both teams sitting in the change room having a beer discussing cricket. And, you know, Malcolm Marshall... Um, was such an amazing uh, judge of a cricketer and and judge of a, a person's strengths and weaknesses and he would sit in our change room and go through all of us and pick us to pieces you know this is where your batting needs to be better yeah. this is what I bowl at you normally this is how I get you out and so on and he was absolutely spot on so you know the, the sort of uh, the, the cross-pollination of cricket ideas and thoughts that first West Indian tour was was more than just about the cricket that happened on the field um, they were brilliant as cricketers, obviously, and they went on to dominate the world for some time. But for us, it was such an education. So anybody who scored, if I remember correctly, Robin Brown got some runs against that very good attack. Um, and, and so anybody who did something there, be it yeah. with the ball or the bat, you knew that that was, that was a, almost like a test performance, I guess. Yeah, and we still had a good side. As I said, this is, again, the same bunch of guys that, that were still quite hardened from Curry Cup. So Jackie Heron was still playing. Andy Pycroft got runs all the time. Mm. Um, Duncan Fletcher was as good as anybody on the day. You know, we had performances that that uh, were outstanding in those in those games. You know, so I think we beat them in a one-day game in Bulawayo, which was an amazing feat for, from our point of view as well. Pretty much the rest of things they dominated. Um, Richie Kashula was still playing for us at the time, and he, he had he had some great contests with their batsmen. They'd never seen anything like this guy, and he got some good wickets amongst them. It's a very difficult customer because, but in those days, Davey, things were different though, weren't they? I mean, nobody was really prepared. Well, very few people, should I say, was very prepared, unless you were Viv Richards or, or, or someone of that nature, to be innovative and inventive, even yourself. Like, so you wouldn't mind coming down the wicket and trying to take the spinners on and, you know, be, bring out the reverse sweep, one of my most dreaded shots, but it, it certainly can be effective. So lots of times, the likes of John Tricos and Richard Kashula, and I'm not taking anything away from what they did, but they were allowed to dictate terms because the batsmen would, kind, would just kind of feel, oh, well, we'll see them off and then maybe target the next group of bowlers. Yeah, Richie, Richie was a different prospect. I mean, Richie basically had a, a very economical and very easy-looking action, but he actually got the ball down the other end quite quick. Right. And, he, and you know, everyone looks at his size, but actually his height was the biggest advantage. So he bowled the ball from an incredible big height, and it skidded on and bounced a bit. He didn't turn it a great deal, but he would turn it if you used your feet. So he had all of that, plus, of course, he had his whole... Um, aura around himself which <laughs> was you know you didn't really want to get out to him because no. he wouldn't let you live it down for, for a long time so you know he, that was his yeah. way of, of dealing with things and he was blooming good at it and then of course you had Trikes who was so accurate I mean he could hit the, you know, a pinhead from 22 yards six times out of six he was incredibly accurate and tight now also in those days we had the 6-3-7-2 leg side fields we didn't oh, yeah, have yeah. The, the, the new rules of only five on the leg side so Someone like Trikes could tie right-handers up. He could have seven people on the, le on the leg side. Nobody had a reverse sweep in those days. 
And if people used to try and use their feet and get inside out against him, he'd just follow them and they wouldn't be able to. So, you know, they had, for those days, they had all the skills required. And I'm not sure they would work in these days, but in those days it was uh, fantastic. Andy Flower, the late Hansi Cronier, uh, when talking of reverse sweeps, your name would come up. I'm not entirely sure Hansi would have seen you because in those days, you know, as a youngster, they, we weren't televised. Zimbabwe weren't televised, so I'm not entirely sure where he would have seen you play the reverse sweep, but he certainly mentioned your name on a number of occasions, and as I've already alluded to, so did Andy Flower. When did you start realizing that this reverse sweep could actually be a, a, an option for you? It was against um, one of the first-class sides we played, Pakistan Air- Airlines, and um, playing for them was Mushtaq Mohammed. Now, obviously, I was a keeper in those days, so I was standing right behind the stump, so I got the best view. And Trikes was bowling. And Mushy, you know, was hitting the ball on the leg side. There were six fielders on the leg side, and he couldn't get the ball through anyway. And out came this reverse sweep. And the first time it happened, you know, everyone was, ooh and ah, oh, he's going to miss one of those. It's dead straight and everything. And he just did it again and again and again until we moved, had to move a fielder across. So even without the rules in, we couldn't bowl to a 6-3 field. We now had to have a 5-4 with a sweeper on the offside because of this reverse sweep. And straight away, I'm standing behind him and I'm thinking, this is a good shot. This is something, you know, we need to do and need to learn. And being an ex-hockey player, squash player, I didn't see this as a problem. We didn't used to try and whack it out the ground. We just used to deflect the ball. Right. So you just get on one knee and you effectively just deflect it with the back end to, to that side. Um, and that's, I took it on from there and I started using it in that series, I tried it. And it, I enjoyed it and I carried on with it and I kept it as a shot. So Mushy was the person who showed me. Um, in terms of Hansi seeing me play the reverse sweep, I played against Hansi quite a bit. Um, you know, in one day internationals and World Cup right. in, um, uh, in uh, Australia in particular. But also, uh, you know, in those games like the one you mentioned earlier when I batted with Tom at, um, in, in Port, at uh, Port Elizabeth. Yeah. yeah. So he'd seen a fair oh, amount of my reverse sweep. Because he was the, the very first player that you mentioned, because uh, he used to play it pretty well as well, did the late Hansi. So tell us a bit about that innings. You know, I, I, I remember I was at school, uh, just second last year at boarding school, and my house father came and he said, Dean, there's a beautiful article here in our newspaper, the local newspaper. Uh, it's in Afrikaans, but um, I'll, read, I'll translate it to you in English, although your Afrikaans, I'm sure, is good enough to understand. But if you, you know, would like me to translate it, I'll gladly do it. And there is a beautiful coloured picture here, a coloured photograph taken in colour of Andy Flower and Dave Houghton. Uh, and they are coming to play ag- against South Africa for a Kepler Vessels Benefit 11 in Port Elizabeth. But the article was more about Andy Flower. Unfortunately, you, you just got a slight mention by the, by the writer and said it was nice that Dave Houghton is going to be there. But they, they were carrying on and on about Andy. I mean, Andy obviously was an unknown quantity then. Uh, well, a relatively unknown quantity then. But he scored 100 in 1993 against India, 115 not out and, and 115 and 62 not out. And you were a part of that test match. That was where Vinod Kamde got the double 100. So naturally, because of, of Andy scoring those runs against that bowling attack, the focus was more on him as opposed to you. Unfortunately for Andy, he didn't score a run. You scored the 114. And I remember the house father just saying, you see, that's what happens when you continuously focus on one person and the other one does it. Tell us about that, Inin, because that was a pretty fearsome attack that you were up against. Well, it was, it was interesting from a number of points of view because, I mean, Andy and I had both been playing a bit of cricket in England and that, and we'd been involved in many benefit games in England. And benefit games in England generally is all about people just being there, signing autographs, having a 
couple of gin and tonics at lunchtime and, and you know, good sandwiches and things like that. It was, the South Africans didn't quite understand that. For them, a benefit game was a full-blooded test match. Yeah. So when we rocked up for this game and we had this rest of the world side, you know, we had a good, good team, good bunch of guys, but I think most of them felt, you know, this is going to be a nice little social outing and you know, nobody's going to really be wearing spikes in that. And, of course, the South Africans don't play cricket like that. No. So all of a sudden, we've got Brett Schultz and everyone and Alan Donald charging in our full run-ups, you know, bowling 100 miles an hour at us. <laughs> it's like, hang on a second, these guys are playing fair dinkum. You know, we better, better get our, our stuff sorted out. So... Uh, it, it's funny, it's one of the innings that I remember that I really enjoyed and played really well, but it goes down as a benefit game. Mm. But at the time, it, it certainly didn't feel like a benefit game. And uh, I know I took uh, Pat Simcox apart, which I enjoyed quite a lot, um, because he did have quite a, quite a lot to say when he was bowling, which I thought was unnecessary. But anyway, we did take him down. And I think, as I said, Hansi would have seen a fair amount of my reverse sweep that day. I remember, I remember Alan Donald talking to me and he said that you kept annoying Fani de Villiers immensely by fetching the balls that he bowled from outside the off stump and sweeping him for six. You know, like he was saying, we as fast bowlers, we don't particularly, if we get pulled or hooked, well, that's okay, you know, because that's what happens. But somebody fetching you from outside the off stump and sweeping you as if you're playing a spinner. I mean, Fani was quick enough, that's for sure. And, you know, sweeping not just over the boundary, but a long, long way back as well. So how does that work? How do you... Because, because, and I'll tell you why. Because both Tom Moody and Mark Nicholas in Zimbabwe were playing Ireland in a World Cup game in 2015. And both Tom and Mark, who were commentating at the time, said that you were probably 15 years ahead of your time. And they compared you to A.B. de Villiers. So they were, you know, not in the sense that you were as good as A.B. or as consistent as A.B., but in the sense that you were very innovative, just like A.B. de Villiers was, if, if that makes sense. I, you know, I've always had a fairly good cricket uh, understanding and cricket brain, and it sounds silly, but I do spend a lot of time speaking to our batters in absolute basics, and absolute basics is hit the ball where there isn't a fielder. Now, sometimes that means you have to be unorthodox because there's absolutely no point patting the same ball back to the same fielder every time because there are bowlers in the world who can bowl six of those in a row, so it's just maiden after maiden. You have to find a way to score, and, you know... Anyone who knows a little bit about my, my childhood and that would understand I was a good ball player. I mm. played hockey, I played tennis, I played squash. And I have very good hand-eye uh, coordination. I wouldn't say I had the best technique or anything, but I have a very good eye. And I use that. And I use that in my improvisation. So things like sweeping a fast bowler was, to some people would look like a dangerous occupation. But to me it wasn't. It was me using their pace. So I didn't actually have to do a lot. All I had to do was get in line with it, use their pace and just lift the ball up. And it would go because of the pace they've put on the ball. Yeah, so yeah. rather than, I, I wasn't a Viv Richards who could stand there and smack a fast bowler back over his head for six. I would more often use the, batsman's, uh, the bowler's pace and hit it behind square for six. So it's just guys finding different ways of using what they've got to be effective. And those were, were my ways. I mean, I still go back to one of my better knocks and this again goes back to Hans, he's seen my, my reverse sweep. Yeah. We played a one-day international against um, South Africa in Cape Town. And I batted at the end, I was in, and Guy Whittle was with me. Yes, yes. And we started reverse sweeping Alan Donald. <laughs> and it annoyed him intensely, I can tell you. But it, for us, it wasn't a dangerous occupation. It was harder for us to hit him over his head than it was for us to just use his pace. That's remarkable. That is unbelievable. So using the pace as opposed to muscling the ball, which is what Verve did... 
But I do remember one particular shot, though, in terms of hitting a quick bowler, and that was Lance Klusner, who was, on his day, was really quick as well, underrated in my opinion. And you also, at the Wanderers, managed to hit him straight back over his head as well. But it was more of a, a sort of a Javad meander type of a shot. Did you, did you watch Javad quite a bit on the, the limited video footage that we had in those days? Yeah, I watched him and played against him. And, and I did actually take some of his technique and try to put it into mine. Right. But, I mean, the Lance Klusner one was an interesting one because I'd watched Lance bowl a number of times. And, and you know, behind their attack, Lance wasn't their best bowler. But this is not saying he was a poor bowler, no, no, he was a no. good bowler. But behind that attack, yeah. he got a lot of wickets because people would take all their risks against Lance. And one of the things Lance did, he just ran up and he bowled, he had quite lively pace. He you know, bowled in the middle of the crease and he'd try and swing the ball out a little bit. And that was fine. You know, it, it didn't do a great deal, it wasn't too threatening. Then what he'd do is he'd jump very wide of the crease and bowl the same ball and people would chase it. So you ended up nicking a ball that was a foot wide of the crease because you weren't sure if it went straight on whether it would hit the stumps. So having watched all that, I then thought, okay, that's fine. So when I next see him go wide of the crease, I'm going to go with him. So I did. And in that particular shot, and I remember it, and it's one of the few shots of my cricket career that's still on Google. So some of my youngsters at Derby always bring it up and show me. But as he went wide, I went wide with him. And so he ended up bowling me a half volley straight at me. And all I had to do was get bat on it and it was going to go. As it, as it turned out, it went quite a long way back into the stands. <laughs> it certainly did. And it very nearly hit some of your supporters, actually, Zimbabwean supporters who were, who were up were good and days, weren't <laughs> they? I mean, look at all the support we had down there at the Wonders. Yeah, yeah. But even in Cape Town, because there was yeah. a, a contingent who followed you, weren't there, that um, sort of went from, from venue to venue with you in South Africa, which must have been very nice to have had all that Zimbabwe support there. So then... Uh, Let's, let's talk a bit about your coaching days. Um, well, actually, before we do that, there's one world uh, many years ago when I was still a teenager. You told me about this, this benefit game that you played. Uh, and you played with and against some of the, the most incredible cricketers. But uh, there was one you were... I, I don't recall the story entirely, but this very old 70-year-old man who you played a benefit game with, was it in Canada or some weird, obscure place, who was a, still a big, strong man and, and could still time the ball quite magnificently... Do you, do you remember that story? Gee, I, I don't. But I, I think, you know, I think where you're getting to is is the the World World Series games. I used to get picked into going playing Canada. Right. Um, and most guys only got one go at it. I got three in a row. In fact, this, the third one, I ended up captain, which I found amazing because I had I was captaining. Viv Richards was in my side and Sachin Tendulkar and things like that. Quite a good side to captain against. Wow. But. Um, those were three fantastic years. We, we played against the West Indies all three times. They were world champions at the time. So this rest of the world side against the West Indies. Um, you know, Canadian cricket is, is, has always been on the up and is heavily uh, sort of supported by West Indies, India and Pakistan and so on. So, you know, the first game we played there in the Toronto Skydome, we had 57,000 people watching. So it was one of the biggest crowds I ever played under. Ooh. Yeah, that is, that is quite remarkable. Then on to the coaching days we go, Davey, and uh, it was something that I, I think you had a great deal of, of pleasure doing because once again Zimbabwe, or you were coaching a team, that is to say, that at times were punching well above their weight. And of course, we've spoken at length and depth about the success we had against England in 96, 97. Those memories, I would imagine, still stand out for you like, you know, like it happened just the other day. Yeah, yeah, coaching has always has been a, a big part of my life. I mean, right from the start here, 
when I was involved in cricket on a professional basis and I was the only one person who was. I was director of coaching and got paid for that. I didn't get paid to play cricket. Um, so I've always been involved in coaching. It's an interesting one with Zimbabwe because a lot of people ask now and they say, you know, how come we've had Fletcher, Flower, Streak, Houghton, all these guys who've been coaches everywhere. What makes, how can a small country produce coaches who've done quite well? And I think a lot of it comes down to us having a small group of players, having to really fight above our weight and having to find ways to win mm. and to compete with what we've got against the best. And, and I think that makes a massive thing. And that's the thing that actually gives me the most pleasure is finding ways to win. I remember when England came here with, um, with um, uh, David, um, David, Dave, Lloyd. Yeah, yeah. David Lloyd as the head coach and, and Athers was the captain. And I had been coaching in Worcester that year and I had spent the whole year studying what I thought would be the team that came out and writing down what I thought was a way to get each person out, how to play each bowler and so on. So a lot went into the background of that tour so that when we came to compete against them, we were ready. And I remember I put it all up on a board in our change room, where to bowl at each person. It was right by the door so every bowler could walk out there, have a quick look at the board and then walk onto the field. We all had it fresh in our minds. And it worked, mm. you know, and it, I suppose in a way that was the first sort of look at uh, statistical uh, analyzing that we ever did. And it was not done with any video recordings or any computers. It was just done by sight and using our heads. And I think that's, that's been the biggest thing for me. So coaching per se, you know, of this is how you hold the bat, this is how you pick it up, this is where you move your feet and all that. I'm a little less of that and a little bit more on uh, strategic planning and how to win cricket games. And it, it's a wonderful time because Zimbabwe enjoyed some of the best, uh, some of the best cricket games that you had in in terms of of you coaching it. So the the England series was pretty good. But then, amongst all of that, there were also very good wins in Sharjah, beating uh, India, beating Sri Lanka, getting through to a final in Sharjah in 1998. Admittedly, Sachin Tendulkar simply was too good on the day but the point is that Zimbabwe got to these finals the the 90 the World Cup win against South Africa in 99 you know I, uh, there's so many incredibly good memories I, I remember two triangular series 1997 the one where you scored a couple of runs in uh, when you were there as player coach what was that like I mean because now to understand the difference you're on the field as a coach of the side so your natural instincts will be to say, no, Alistair, this is what we should be doing. But now you've got to try and back off a bit as well and understand that, hang on a minute, I, I am the coach, but I am, I, there is a captain of the side. Yeah, it, it took a little bit of a while for me and Alistair to, to actually work that out. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's not an easy situation to be in. Um, but eventually we worked it out quite simply that, you know, I coach one side of the white line and you are in charge of the other side of the white line. And obviously, just like any other time, if I was in the side and he's captain, whether I'm coach or not, I would offer advice. But Alistair makes the decisions. And I've always been a believer that once a person makes a decision, whether it's right or wrong, if you all support that decision, 99% of the time, it'll, it will we'll make it right. Did you guys have full-on arguments about things that, that, you know, I should have, I told you we should have done this, or was that never the case? Was it, was it always a nice, amenable way of working it out afterwards? Oh, I, think, I think we had a pretty amenable way of working things out, but, you know, it would, it would be wrong to say we didn't ever have our differences of yeah. opinion. We certainly did. Um, but I think that's healthy in a side. It's, it's not a, um, you know, you, it's not a personal thing. You, you're both trying to do the same things, you know, and... Uh, well, you're all are. I'm just I'm up for everybody in the team being able to offer opinions and to give their advice. But the biggest thing for me is that once you've offered your opinion, you now 
Don't go and sulk if your opinion's not taken. You support the decision that's made. Yeah, and, yeah. and that was the big thing for me. As long as, as long as the opinion's been given, fantastic. Once the decision's made, support it. Davy, and in 2000, Zimbabwe went to the West Indies, had a difficult tour, but at times played some incredibly good mm. cricket. Zimbabwe should have won the first test match, but it didn't happen. I would imagine a lot of it had to do with nerves and a very difficult pitch as well. Facing Ambrose Welsh uh, on, on the last day would have been maybe a bit too much for, for little Zimbabwe to handle. I don't know. I wasn't there, so I can't say that. But So Zimbabwe didn't win any games, but they played some fantastic cricket. And Easter weekend arrived in 2000. Myself and my brother were journeying out to a little town called Mashava, which is where my parents lived. Gary collected a newspaper, and I heard this intake of breath, and I thought something really bad had happened. And in our minds it was, because there were these big blaring headlines saying, Houghton resigns as national coach. Why was that, Davey? What, what happened? Because it seemed that you know, everything was, was going quite nicely. Had you had enough, or were there some behind-the-scenes things happening as well? It's a little bit of both, um, but it starts a little bit before the tour, because we'd come back from the World Cup, we'd had a good World Cup, we got to the Super Sixes, we didn't quite make it uh, into the, the semi-finals and finals, but we'd had a good World Cup in England. And when we got back here, um, things had already changed within the team, so the, the, I'd been with the team three years now as their coach, and probably a year before that as player coach. And... The problem is, you, you know, I think a lot of guys will explain this to you. If you ever look around the world, you don't see many coaches of international sides hanging around for longer than four or five years. And the reason for that is not because they are no longer any good. It's because their voice becomes tiring. People have heard the same thing over and over again from the same voice. And it's time to bring a new, uh, new, new voice and new energies into the change room. And I recognize that. And I went to the ZCU after the, the World Cup and I said, the time is right. It's time to get another coach in now and take this team further forward. I've got them as far as I can get them. To give you an example, we had a, a laid out 20-page um, program that each person had to how to play our one-day cricket. Right. Statistically and, and, and strategically how we were going to play our one-day cricket. Using that, that uh, form that everybody had, over a two-year period we won 75% of our games, which included the World Cup games. So it was successful. Everybody carried it with them. When we came back from the World Cup and we got together for the first practices and that, I asked the guys to get their forms out. Not one person had kept it. And that's when I realized straight Not away, Nobody. Andy Flower, oh. that he didn't have it with him, but he's the only person who kept a copy. And funny enough, he still uses it. Right. Now that, that immediately told me these guys are tired of my voice and my ideas and they needed somebody else. And I knew it. And I told the ZCU, I went up and I spoke to Dave Alman Brown at the time, he was uh, the chairman. And he said, no, 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 you'll be fine, don't worry about it, you know, we'll just go on the tour, you'll be fine. And unfortunately, we went on the tour and it wasn't fine. You know, I was uh, struggling, I was, I was getting anxious because we weren't producing the results I wanted to produce. We, you know, we now, we're a good side, we should be winning. Yes. Um, and that test match, I don't blame the players for that test match, I mean, that... The thing that helped West Indies here was that about a day and a half of that test got taken out by rain. Because if we'd had to knock that score off on the third and a half day, we'd have knocked it off with one wicket down. But by the fifth day, the cracks were about an inch and a half, two inches wide. And one ball would shoot past your toe and one past your head. And at, you know, at 90 plus miles an hour from two quick bowlers, you got no chance. In fact, Grant Flower, I think, I always say to Grant, that's the best innings I ever saw him play. He batted 35 overs for 25 or something. And... 
just amazing that he survived 35 overs. Um, but it's, um, you know, we lost that. That was miserable. Then we went and lost another couple. Then there was a bit of a fallout at the time because things were happening back in Zimbabwe. And so Murray, you know, Murray's wife was uh, worried about the, the, the farm invasions yes, and yes. things. And she wanted to leave and go back to Australia. So that caused concern to Murray. Uh, Neil Johnson had the same problem, you know, having been happy here in Zimbabwe. Suddenly his wife wanted to go back to South Africa. So we had all these compounding issues, and then in the middle of it is me not getting what I'm hoping to get out of the team. So I looked at it. We had a meeting on the tour as well with the players. They weren't happy with it. Um, and at the end of the tour, uh, Peter Chingoka was over with Dave, and I said, look, you know, whether you like it or not, I'm out of here. Um, because the team went straight on to England, if you remember, did a tour there. So I left. And uh, I think that is pretty much where we will conclude this interview. It's been a long one, but I tell you what, it has been absolutely wonderful, Dave. So obviously you're focusing on Derbyshire and, and that is now your, your bread and butter. But I would imagine that when Zimbabwe are back and once again, they'll never, be a, they'll never be the same type of normal. We understand that. But when things do straighten out and when you see Zimbabwe play, I would imagine you do still have... Um, an ear and an eye still, I suppose, trained and focused on what, what happens here in Zimbabwe as well? I watch their results all the time. Uh, and obviously I'm always there hoping that they win, hoping that they compete, um, you know, and delighted to see when they do so. Nice to see some new young players coming through now as well. Um, I always hope Zimbabwe cricket will get back to where it could be. And I, I think it's there. You know, the, the difference now is there's thousands of players to choose from. we just got to get it right at the bottom make sure the clubs are ready for them, make sure that the first-class cricket's right, and then I think the national team will take care of itself. You're listening to Dean at Stumps, hosted by Dean Duplessis. And that brings us to the end of a fantastic interview with uh, Dave Houghton. I certainly hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you very much indeed for listening to the Dean at Stumps podcast. And just a reminder that you can maybe get friends and family and cricket lovers around the world to subscribe via your various podcast feeds and apps because there really are some fantastic interviews to uh, entertain you and to, to keep you busy with. Thank you once again for listening. It's been an absolute joy being with you and we'll be back again pretty soon. But until then, stay safe and goodbye. You've been listening to Dean at Stumps. Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket podcast. <laughs>